Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. When the pandemic hit in 2020, we all experienced feelings of disconnection from our coworkers, friends, families, communities, and even ourselves. As challenging as it's been, we all learned some important lessons. We learned the importance of human connection. We learned that we can still all show up for our community. And most importantly, we learned that we need to take care of ourselves if we want to be able to take care of others. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Shelly Tegelski. She's a trauma-informed mindfulness teacher, community organizer, self-care activist, and author of Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. Shelly is also the founder of Pandemic of Love, a grassroots, volunteer-led, and formalized mutual aid community. Shelly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. I really am so happy to be here. Absolutely. Looking forward to this conversation. So let's start out um, having you tell us about yourself, kind of who you are, what you do, and then how you became passionate about both self-care and mindfulness and kind of the connection between those. Sure. So I, who am I? That's like such a big loaded question. <laughs> I wear so many hats. I, um, let's start with the easy stuff. I'm a, I'm a mother, a daughter, a wife. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a community member, very active community member in many different communities. Uh, I spent 20 years in the corporate world uh, working in a variety of spaces, uh, namely private equity and real estate arenas. And I left that world uh, in 2015 and decided to become a full-time mindfulness teacher, <laughs> which uh, was really scary to do. Um, but uh, my journey since 2015 has been incredibly interesting in that um, what I thought I would be doing, which is primarily working in uh, the corporate world, bringing mindfulness to corporate spaces, which I do work with a lot of corporations, but you know, it, it, that's not primarily what I spend my time doing. Instead, I spend most of my time working with um, organizations, for-profit, non-profit, with uh, governmental organizations, social justice organizations uh, all over the world on uh, building resilience, mm-hmm. on uh, trauma-informed mindfulness practices, and on a variety of um, just different tools and modalities that can assist them in building uh, self-care practices, but more importantly, building communities of care and safety nets that can allow uh, them to support each other. So. That's, that's about me in a nutshell. Um, and you asked about the connection between sort of all of all the work that I do and mindfulness and really the premise of sort of all the work that I do is 
the notion that uh, we have to connect the inner work with the outer world and that the best version of ourselves or the best version of our world rather starts with the best version of ourselves. Hmm. So what was there, what was the catalyst for you to leave the corporate world and make the decision to start teaching mindfulness full time? It's so interesting that you ask that because when I really like, when I really dig deep and I kind of reflect back, I probably never should have been in the corporate world to begin with. Um, I left graduate school in the nineties. I was in New York city at a great school and, you know, at a great time to come out into the marketplace. And so big companies were like throwing money at people that were coming out of, you know, my, my, um, graduate school. And I thought, well, I've got student loans. And, you know, yes, I want to go work for like a United Nations type agency, or, you know, a nonprofit, um, and make a difference in the world. And I but I have all these student loans. So maybe I'll just do that for a couple of years. And then I'll go back to making a difference, you know, uh, full time. And uh, what ultimately happens, I think what happens to many of us is we sort of get stuck with uh, you know, just a lifestyle with obligations with, uh, you know, you get accustomed uh, to, uh, to a life that you're leading. And, and, and not that it doesn't bring fulfillment, right? I was very fulfilled in many, you know, cases uh, with the work that I was doing, but there was always sort of that like void or that, could I be doing more? Should I be doing more? Is this the right time for, for me to, you know, step out of, the role that I'm in and, and, and dedicate myself to, um, you know, to something that really, um, I've been thinking about doing for, for, you know, most of my life. And, um, and it just never seemed like it was the right time, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I always like to say that in spite of myself, (laughs) um, I, I continued to rise up the ranks in the corporate world. Uh, you know, from went from like a cubicle to eventually running a company with 2,400 employees in 14 markets across the country. And um, it wasn't like I set out to do that. I wasn't like the person who was like, I'm going to become this, you know, by this, and by this date or by this age, I actually um, was just good at what I did. And so, you know, that continued to get recognized. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll take that promotion, you know, Uh, And I just got further and further sucked in. So the decision ultimately came, I think the universe uh, sort of just threw me out of the nest. And it was like, enough, enough of this nonsense. You know, after 20 years of of, of doing this, um, I myself was going through sort of this existential, let's call it a pre-midlife crisis, right? (laughs) I was like turning turning 40. Uh, It was 2015-ish. Uh, and I'm running this company, um, I'm maybe a year and a half into my, into my contract. Uh, and I know that I've got like a a few good more years on this contract and I'm kind of like the type of person that will always, you know, see things through. Um, but I felt very like lonely at the top, you know, Mm -hmm. I felt really lonely as, um, as a boss and, um, as a, as a leader of a company and everybody's constantly coming to you and, even though I had like business groups that I was a part of, you know, from a mentorship and peer groups, um, I just kind of 
still really felt alone. And I was longing very much for community and longing very much for connection uh, in a very different way that I could get in the business world. And so I had this practice of, of meditating every Sunday morning or as often as I could get to the beach. You know, I lived in South Florida and I lived very close to, to the ocean. And so uh, whenever I could squirrel away some time in the morning, I would go sit at the beach and, you know, just kind of reflect on life and find some peace and quiet. And what kept kind of coming up for me and bubbling up was that I really was longing for connection and community. Mm. And so I had this like thought you know, in, in, in the fall of 2015, that I should put on my social media page, um, you know, just like a little uh, uh, question, you know, who wants to, uh, who wants to join me for meditation on Sunday morning, Mm -hmm. on this date in November, uh, at this location. And I thought, you know, maybe a few handful of people will show up and, and on November 15th, um, of 2015, basically we had, uh, you know, 12 people show up to meditate with me. They were all people I knew acquaintances, uh, and some were good friends. And it was interesting because when I think back to kind of the profile of everybody that did show up, everyone there was going through something, mm-hmm. right? They mm-hmm. like were just had got a divorce. Maybe they were just an empty nester, just got a diagnosis with an illness or lost a parent. And so it was so interesting, but we all came together and it was just such a powerful um, moment of community and connection that um, we were like, this is really great. We should do this again. And so we decided, you know, on another date and a few Sundays down the road and that those 12 people turned into 30 and those 30, you know, brought more friends and turned into 60 people and then eventually a hundred people. And by May of 2016, so really just six months after that first gathering of 12, we had, you know, close to a thousand people on Mother's Day of 2016 gathering at the beach, the point where the police department actually had to come and shut us down because their like emergency vehicles could not get through. We were literally from the dunes to like the shore and, uh, and, and nobody could pass through. And so while they couldn't stop us from gathering, we just had to kind of create an arrangement uh, and start putting cones out for future gatherings. But, but that group, which was uh, really self-titled, I, I didn't come up with the name, but somebody started a hashtag called uh, Sand Tribe. Mm-hmm. And so the Sand Tribe would meet every Sunday morning uh, you know, 40 out of 52 Sundays a year, weather permitting, holidays, et cetera. And, um, and it was great. It was an incredible community that uh, kept going for five years until COVID really, you know, the, the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic just no longer allowed us to gather. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, you share many memorable stories in your book, but um, I, you know the visual of of you alone on the beach, you know, meditating by yourself, and then yeah, you know, the visual of thousands of people having joined yeah. you. I thought was so powerful. So thank you for for sharing that. Yeah, your so your book title. Let's let's talk about this. Refers to what you call radical self care. So what is that look like? And what's so radical about it? Well, I think, you know, the radical part about it is, was, 
multifaceted. So I think the first part is that I really try, especially in the book, to get us back to the roots of what self-care is mm-hmm. and what it and really delineate and like, you know, make sure people understand what it isn't. Because really the term self-care has been hijacked by the industrial wellness complex. Totally. Or, yeah. You it's know, not Wine people, Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wine Down Wednesday and like, you know, mud masks and right. $30 spin classes, et cetera. And like, that's all great. But the reality is, is that, you know, the notion and just the concept of self-care was radical to begin with. And mm-hmm. it was a, a means of survival people associate self-care now with like thriving, but before it was about thriving, it was really about surviving. And, you know, we oftentimes forget that for so many marginalized people, not just in this country, but all over the world, it's still very much about survival because they don't have access to the healthcare or the, the tools or the, um, you know, just, um, basically, you know, the healthcare, just access to anything that could possibly give them a measure of support, uh, whether it's physically, mentally, spiritually, etc. So, so, so in that sense, you know, that's the first part of the radical kind of um, concept. The second thing is, is that um, I really try to also kind of create the connection between you know, how Audre Lorde really described self-care back during the feminist and the civil rights movement, right? That self-care really can be an act of resistance, that self-care is not self-indulgent, that self-care is um, just an, an act of, uh, of of perseverance, right? And, pres- and self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And And I think finally, you know, it's this concept that self-care actually is not individualistic. And that is really the biggest kind of takeaway that I hope people can get from the book is that, yes, okay, we use the word self. And so, you know, in the English language, we think self, we think singular, you think, you know, one person, Uh, the self, many of us believe just is this kind of body, you know, and it doesn't extend beyond this person that is like sitting here, you know, but rather the self is way bigger than we are. And I'm not talking about this in like a woo woo kind of a way, right? This is not like, you know, hey, let's light some incense and like start chanting together. But really, you know, when we think about how interconnected we are and how intraconnected we are, right? Interconnection is like two separate beings are connected in some way. And we have so many of those connections through family and community and the people we work with. Even people here that are listening to this episode now are connected to us, right? To you and me in some way. Um, but intraconnection is this understanding that really we're one, a part of one bigger ecosystem. And so for that reason, we're like one organism that has connections within it. And I think that if we could start to get to this kind of concept that, yes, we're inter intraconnected, not just interconnected. And for that reason, you know, we need to make sure that the term self really extends beyond just the singular, but really moves into communal responsibility, communal obligation, right, a moral obligation that we have to take care of each other, then we can really start to shift, I think, from a social movement perspective, what the world actually looks like. 
yeah, I I love that and talk about something that perhaps is needed now more than ever. <laughs> um, so yeah. I, I guess how do you um, go about you know building this community of care around you? I mean, for for you and the story you shared about meditating on the beach. Um, it was, I guess, what was seemingly a social media, you know, simple social media post that created yeah. this giant community. But what can, I mean, what do you suggest we do to build that community of care? Well, I mean, it has to be incredibly formalized, right? So yes, I put up a social media <laughs> post eventually that led me to forming this community of 15,000 meditators that eventually, you know, gave me the courage and sort of pushed me into this uh, place where I am today, you know, gave me the courage to leave my job, helped me understand that there are like other things in the world that I need to be doing. But I, I, while I viewed that community, uh, the sand tribe, if you will, as definitely a, a community of care of sorts, it wasn't a formalized community of care. And so what I talk about in the book a lot is how there's, there's a few kind of formalized steps that we each need to commit to taking. And the first is, is that we each need to have our own formalized self-care plans, which means that we have to actually write down uh, sort of, we can metaphorically think of it as a break glass in case of emergency, you know, like when we are at our worst, when we are feeling emotionally depleted, when we are on the brink of burnout or, you know, just really fatigued, we're not thinking straight. Yeah, making necessarily the right choices. We're making the easiest choices for ourselves in that moment. And so it's really important to have a sort of emergency plan that is written down, that is formalized. And what happens is, is that a lot of people create, you know, self-care plans or they create, you know, you've seen um, people creating vision boards, especially like at the beginning of a year. But when you do that, and you just kind of stick your self-care plan in, in your desk uh, or under a pile of paper, you know, you're not doing yourself any, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice, actually. And so what I suggest oftentimes is for people to then at least find one other person, right? The more the merrier, of course, but let's start with one. Find an accountability buddy. Find a person that is... Um, also going to commit to creating a self-care plan and then share the plans with each other. Share the plans with each other in such a way that you, I start identifying the obstacles that you believe you will have. So for example, if I'm, and this, this is an example that I use for my book, actually, you know, at the time that I started really kind of working on a self-care plan, I was a single mom. And so even though I had things like, exercise for an hour a day or go to yoga twice a week or, you know, all of these really great things that are written down. But the reality is, is that I had time poverty. I, I really just did not have the time to do any of those things because I was working full time. I was a single mom, you know, I was still very much an active member of my community uh, in different ways. And so I seem to always put myself last, you know, I came last. And that kept depleting me in, in, in many different ways. And I had like a lot of health issues at that time as well. And so in creating a self-care plan and sharing it with a group of like five or six women who also had a self-care plan, they were able to basically, you know, 
have this honest conversation with me where I said, I have time poverty. There's no way that I can, um, you know, make it to the gym every week. And I'm really starting to feel um, this decline in my health because I'm not taking care of myself physically. And so I had a bunch of women who were in this group say, well, I, I can drive your son to school on this day and I can babysit for an hour a week on this day. And that gave me back time because they, they had an excess of that, right? They had extra time. And I was able to then do things for them to remove obstacles that maybe were on their list. And so in, in doing so, what we realize is that when we create these sort of mutual aid communities, we, we start to create this beautiful tapestry. We start to weave this beautiful tapestry um, where every single person in the community has something they need and every single person in the community has something that they can offer. And we remove the stigma of asking for help. Uh, we remove you know, the fear and we recognize that regardless of socioeconomic status, because we always tend to associate, you know, um, kind of having freedom or the ability to do things with that, uh, regardless of socioeconomic status, that we can all, you know, help each other and that a rising tide really does lift all boats. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like in the book, that's when you, I mean, and you touched on it before, you know, that, you know, self-care should be something that everyone has access to and you talk about it as inclusive self-care and so i guess this is the the path of the avenue that regardless of what means we have we can always you know we can build a community and and ask for help and give help in the ways that we can um and that's going to look different for everyone right exactly yeah I love that. So I want to talk about Pandemic of Love. Since its inception, since you started it, you've facilitated over 60 million in mm -hmm. aid to people in need. But talk to us about how you came up with the idea and just the approach, because it's pretty unique. And I know that you're just recently back from Ukraine. So take us on that journey. Well, so it's interesting because, you know, when you... Uh, see some of the like clips that were done on different, um, you know, television programs, national programs about pandemic of love. They love to paint this picture of like this woman who's a housewife sitting in her kitchen table and just comes up with this idea. And it's a really romantic and, <laughs> and great story, but that's not actually the story. The story is, is that, you know, I, I was already in the process of uh, enacting mutual aid uh, in the form of self-care communities, but also just, you know, from a financial perspective as well, uh, within the Sand Tribe community, right? So we had this kind of closed circuit mutual aid that was happening because over five years, you really get to know people and you get to know um, their personal stories and you get to know when they have a diagnosis or when they lose their job or when they lose a spouse or, you know, something is going on in their life. And, and ultimately the community kind of rallies around them and helps to uh, get them what they need to make sure that, 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 that they're good, right. That they're in a good place. And so we started to formally create these like self-care groups or these mutual aid groups, if you will, um, where, 
you know, there was a community for recently divorced individuals and a community for cancer survivors and people who were just diagnosed with cancer. And, and every time being in South Florida, there was, which was an annual occurrence, like a hurricane, we mm -hmm. would get together and make sure that, you know, pre-hurricane people were able to, um, you know, have what they need to be prepared for the storm in case, you know, their, their power went out for a week or two, which was a very common occurrence. I don't know if you know this, but I live in yeah. Miami and- um, Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. That's great. My biggest fear in life is hurricanes. And so people will be like, and why do you live in Miami? And that's a great question, but I love Miami. <laughs> yeah, totally. So you can empathize. Totally I can, with, absolutely. With it. I, it sounds yeah. like I need one of these mutual aid communities during a hurricane <laughs> because I'm a hot mess. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I hear you there. I mean, but you know, in terms of the physical aspect, you know what it's like when totally. you're preparing for a hurricane, they're like, you know, go get your hurricane supplies. But if you're barely making ends meet and you can mm -hmm. barely like put food in the fridge, you know, and, and pay your bills, like you how are you now going to go yeah. get like supplies to last you for two weeks? You know, that's not even realistic. Right. And so we, we started to kind of several times a year back to school, you know, making sure that all the kids in our community had the uniforms because in, in again, in, in, in South Florida, at least, you know, um, public schools require uniforms. Yep. And so, you know, again, your kids are growing like constantly. You, you, we take, we may take for granted the fact that you could just go to, you know, a store and purchase, uh, uh, purchase the uniforms for them. But many people can't afford to do that. And so we, we started uniform collections and, and collections for things like laptops, you know, different types of um, technology that students would need. And then during the holiday season as well, we would really ramp up efforts to assist community members who um, relied on things like free lunch and breakfast at, at their public school. And suddenly there were going to have 10 to 20, I mean, 10 to 10 days to two weeks off, you know, where the kids would, would be at home and would really need to, to eat. And maybe they didn't have enough money for, for holiday gifts, et cetera. So, so we already sort of had this like, uh, you know, formalized process, um, but it wasn't anything fancy. It was just something that was open access and people could actually see the names of community members and what they needed. And they could go in and say, Oh, Judy needs a ride on Sunday mornings. Oh, I live next to Judy. I can give her a ride or this person needs, you know, uh, help writing a resume. I can help with that. This person needs a laptop. I have a laptop sitting at home. So it was kind of like this informal, formal, you know, mutual aid community. And when the pandemic, you know, um, started really uh, ramping up, right? I already started to to feel fear beyond just fear for my own like family and for my own self, right? So of course I was worried about my mother who, you know, is in her 70s and has a pre-existing condition. I was worried about um, really my, my, my immediate family and my family near and far. But, but I also started thinking about all these community members that I knew were going to really be suffering from this. And that sheltering in home for them would not be easy at all because they, in many cases, you know, let their kids didn't have laptops. Yeah. But also they don't maybe have Wi-Fi, so they couldn't necessarily continue to go to school and they would fall further behind and sure they also needed food, but you know, these are individuals that relied, they couldn't work from home. You know, they, they're, they're, they, they work, uh, you know, in the hospitality industry, they work in, um, 
you know, uh, restaurants, et cetera. So they were shut down. Yeah. Yeah. They were shut down and they were not getting income. And, and it was just really just, uh, I saw the writing on the wall and I thought, Oh, this is going to be really tragic. And remember at that time, if you can kind of take yourself back to March of 2020, when we were sheltering at home, like, I think we all thought this was going to last for like a week or two. Yeah, I think they told us two weeks, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, we were like, yeah so yeah. in my mind, I was like, yeah, so we can like figure everything's figure outable. We could figure out how to get these people what they need for two weeks. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so I sat down really, this was like, even before we officially were starting to shelter in home. And I thought, okay, what can I tangibly do about it? this? Like, how can I channel this fear, channel this um, fear of the unknown, and this despair that I'm feeling into a tangible action. And I thought, okay, I can't put up a spreadsheet that is like open access and make it widely available to everybody in the community, meaning beyond just the sand tribe community, because that people's personal information is on there, you know, and that's not that that would not be a good thing. So maybe what I could do is just create two forms. And so I did, I created two very simple forms. And um, they're still very simple. If you go to our website, pandemicalove.com, you'll see just how simple they are. And maybe I just create two really simple forms. And then I have uh, a person who wants to give help, fill it out, and a person wants to get help, fill it out. And we can then connect people directly at a time of disconnection because we're social distancing. And now a lot of people were starting to ask me like, you know, how can I help? What can I do? And I didn't have the answer for that. And so this became the answer to that. So I put up the, sh the two links for the forms, uh, give help and get help on a social, on my social media outlets. And, um, and I woke up the next morning and I was shocked to see that hundreds of mm. people filled it out. And they were not all people from South Florida, like the forms went around the world and came back. Um, and in a way proved that really, um, diseases aren't the only thing that can go viral, but a lot of other things can 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 be contagious to things like love and hope and kindness, um, and so on. And so um, it's amazing, because we were getting, you know, requests from Italy and from Portugal, and, you know, just places that had already been going through this now, they were in, you know, week three, week four, week five. Right. And um, they were like, this is an amazing thing. Like, how do we recreate this in our communities? And so I started to replicate the forms. And really soon thereafter, I realized like, wait a minute, I now have like 100 different forms, and it's really getting impossible to manage. I need volunteers. And I need to start to really like streamline this and think about more and more efficient way of doing this. Um, and bringing community leaders together so that they could share best practices and we can continue to like hone and improve the process. And this is where I realized, I will tell you, Jen, that the 20 years I spent in the corporate world <laughs> was actually not lost. I was like, I was like, ah, this is why I had to spend 20 years understanding <laughs> how to scale businesses, how to, you know, build uh, websites, how to really think about sort of the infrastructure and supply chain and create all these different efficiencies. And so um, it, it's pretty cool because the website now sits like on a server, like we can, you know, 
look at data, raw data and manipulate the data. And look, and I know like for people listening to this who are at Deloitte, they're probably going to be geeking out on this because especially if you're like a management consultant, you're like, oh, that's so cool. You know, like we have a dashboard, we can see how many people do we have a need? How many requests do we have? And how many, um, you know, how many people uh, are, are available to fill those needs? And where are they? We can really see the demographics um, of, by down to the zip code and age group and and gender etc and it's pretty pretty amazing and remarkable to now have this like you know millions of mm-hmm. data sets um because we've we've matched over 2.2 million people but we have 2.5 million people in the database right now um that are um you know it tells a story it, it numbers the numbers and the way that the data sort of um you know uh, you could see sort of the types of requests and the, the 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 amount, the denominations, and 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 where they're coming from. It really begins to to, to tell a story, I think, uh, of what has happened in the last twenty four plus months. Can you create these mutual aid communities within companies and corporations? Do you work with teams within companies to do this? Yeah, I actually do. Um, all the time, actually, in the last couple of years, we've created um, probably 30 or 30, 35 amazing networks, uh, mutual aid networks within international corporations, which I'm really excited about because, it, again, it destigmatizes asking for help. It allows uh, for an environment where there's a lot of transparency within teams about what is needed, and um, and and it's in, you know, and it's great for leaders because they're able to sort of anticipate some of the obstacles uh, that a person on their team is facing that they may not have even known about, and they can work together to remove those obstacles. And a lot of times, many of the other team members are able to step in and assist again with things like, you know, helping with with time, you know, or it doesn't necessarily have to be just a monetary thing, right? It very, usually within companies, it's not. Yeah, but I could just see, I mean, you know, the powerful impact that it's having on society and the world at large and bringing it into our own companies and, you know, what we're we're all trying, especially in this, you know, virtual hybrid, (laughs) you know, this weird, this weird world that we're living in, you know, the the needs have changed and are Mm -hmm. so different. And sometimes we, you know, when you can't physically be with someone, you can't always, you know, Mm -hmm. you can't always see those things. You don't always have those types of conversations. So I just, I absolutely love the concept. So yeah. Um, I want to get back to something that you said in your intro. Um, you're a mindfulness teacher. So yeah. let's talk about mindfulness a little bit, um, you know, the sure. impact that it's had on your life um, and then how you help others practice it as well. We've had a lot of people talk about mindfulness on this show, um, but it's something that I know even with our own within our own organization, it's just continuing to kind of gain, you know, popularity is probably the wrong word, but appreciation for the benefits of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I started practicing actually meditation, um, not mm-hmm. uh, mindfulness, but but really just a straight form of meditation called metta, spelled M-E-T-T-A, which is loving kindness meditation, which 
um, helps to cultivate compassion, self-compassion and compassion for others. And I started practicing that as a graduate student um, in the late 90s. And I was very fortunate to um, be introduced at that at a very young age and at that time to somebody who's still my core teacher, Sharon Salzberg, uh, who many of your listeners may, especially those who are appreciative of mindfulness and meditation, um, probably are aware of. And, um, and, and I was a private, I was a, you know, meditation was a private practice for me for, for, for many years. Uh, I will say that up until my health scare, uh, when I turned 27, um, and I was diagnosed with a degenerative eye condition that, you know, could cause blindness and actually has caused blindness in my, in my left eye, um, that I was a crisis meditator. Mm. I was a person that, you know, when things were really rough, I was like, oh my God, I need to meditate. You know, I would like, you know, just get to a point where I was back at equilibrium. I would reset. I was in a homeostatic, you know, just reach my homeostasis, if you will. And then I would just fall off the wagon again. And it was just sort of peaks and valleys. Um, but it wasn't until I was diagnosed um, that, and I really started thinking about my self-care and I had those accountability buddies who were like, did you meditate today, you know, and held me accountable to what I said I was gonna do for myself that I began to make it a part of my morning ritual and it's a non-negotiable practice because I feel like, just like I wouldn't leave the house without putting clothes on or brushing my hair or brushing my teeth. Like if I don't meditate, I'm not a human form of, I'm not the best human form of myself uh, when I leave the house. But what I will say is that I think there's, there's a lot of um, people who are probably in that same boat where, you know, maybe your employer brings in a mindfulness program or there's like a weekly kind of sitting that happens during lunch and, uh, they, or they bring in a speaker. And so you 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 get the benefit from that moment, you know, from those 15 minutes or 10 minutes that you're doing a challenge for 30 days at the beginning of the year, but slowly you may peter off and fall off. And, and, and so you do know that there's, there are benefits to it. But again, it's like, you kind of put yourself last and you say, eh, you know, I don't have those 10 minutes a day, or I don't have those 20 minutes a day to do this. And so for those individuals, the way that I work with companies, the way that I work with individuals is really kind of honing into micro practices and getting people to start creating these sort of micro habits that really adhere, they fit on and take advantage of the things that they are doing anyway on a daily basis. And I try to help to look at a person's daily cycle, like a an average 24 hours in a person's life and what that looks like. And we try to build in these like little um, proverbial, and I talk about this in the book, these mudrooms where they can create these like mini spaces before moving from one thing to another, right? From a meeting, one meeting to another meeting, from your commute into walking into the house, from um, you know, walking, uh, get, getting on a conference call and, and so on. And so I, I try to help create these sort of like little vignettes, these little moments, mindful moments that actually have a huge impact, 
um, people may think, well, it's only 60 seconds, you know, that I'm focusing on, on my breath or that I'm being present, but the quality of how you show up for that next activity is remarkably different when you are able to build these kind of mini moments into your life, six or seven or, you know, eight times a day. And, um, and that seems very plausible and very doable for a lot of people. And that's a really great way to sort of, I say, plant a seed that can really flourish and continue to grow. Because when you continue to do these sort of mindful moments throughout the day, um, for, for a while, you start to realize, okay, well, maybe I can spend five minutes in the morning before getting out of bed, you know, um, and just prop myself up against the headboard and, and meditate for five minutes before I get up, you know, maybe I could do that. And so things just start to feel a lot more doable. Yeah. And, and I imagine, um, well, in my own experience, so I know, um, you certainly start to feel the impact even of those 60 seconds a few times a day. Um, oh, yeah, you know, which kind of inspires you to want to do more. <laughs> so that helps. Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It does. Well, well, Shelly, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I know the listeners will too. I have one last question. We've talked so sure. much about self-care and uh, you talked about the need for a self-care plan in, you know, in, in an emergency. So what is your own self-care plan? Well, so my self-care plan is actually very visual. Um, it has um, six different quadrants, uh, things like, you know, it's a spiritual con- quadrant, physical, financial, mm-hmm. and et cetera. And it just, in each one of those quadrants, I have a list of, of activities uh, or ways or things that I can do for myself uh, on, a, on a daily basis, on a monthly basis, weekly basis, on a seasonal basis. And I really identify sort of those rhythms in my life, um, you know, that uh, require for me to show up for myself so that I can show up continuously for other people as well. And so it's 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 actually a piece of paper that when when I had an office, <laughs> I would keep on my bulletin board in the office, and it became a conversation piece with a lot of my employees who would come in and say like, well, what is that? And we would talk about it, and I would encourage them to you know I'd print out a template for them. And there's many different templates, by the way. You know, we're all obviously very different people in terms of how we we think about. Um, we think about things, right? Some of us are visual, some of us are love spreadsheets and so on. So if you just go onto a web browser and you search a self-care plan template, there's so many different types that you can just go down this like rabbit hole and find the one that's exactly right for you. Um, so my self-care plan really is includes everyday meditation. Uh, it includes connection with, um, you know, with the people that I care about, it absolutely includes nature. Um, I have to get into nature on a daily basis um, and just put myself in the line of beauty as often as possible. Yeah, well, thank you. And I think that's probably uh, uh, thinking in, in visual quadrants that might be a little bit of your corporate or management consultant coming out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We love to think in quadrants. Right. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. I'm trying to speak your language. Yeah, awesome. Well, again, Shelly, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jen. 
I'm so grateful Shelly could be with us today to talk about self-care, community, and mindfulness. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.